Last week, we're kind of in an in-between week. Last week, we, we wrapped up the life of David, and we talked about how David just desired to be a, a man who was not remembered as the military victor, not remembered as the political lawgiver, not remembered as all of the things that a, a successful king like David could have been remembered for, but rather kind of at the, at the core of that end of 2 Samuel where David is, is being like elevated as this is what David is all about. It's all about him being a person of praise. And we looked at some of those very like core things in, in 2 Samuel 22 that the reasons David had to be a person of praise, that even as the waves of destruction crept in on him, he would praise the Lord, not because of his circumstances, but because of God's character. And I thought that this week we might... Um, take another week. Advent starts next week. We're going to jump back into Luke after the first of the year, but I thought, why don't we look at that same idea, being people of praise, being people of rejoicing from a New Testament perspective. It's wonderful to hear that somebody 3,000 years ago, you know, like a, a thousand years before the cross, found reason to praise the Lord in a very psalmist, like Old Testament way. But man, their New Testament resonates with this same. It's like, it's, it's valuable every once in a while to go see what David's teaching in the Old Testament or what David's life demonstrates in the Old Testament. The New Testament just picks up that ball and, and keeps running with it. It is something that the people of God have always been called to, to be people of rejoicing. And I wonder if you asked like the common person on the street, what are the Jesus people about? Is there people of rejoicing? Is that the first thing that comes to people's mind? Is that even the first thing that it comes to my mind when I think, what is the Christian life about? Sometimes I go, what's the Christian life about? Well, it's hard. It's, you know, you got to deny yourself and sometimes you feel ripped off. What am I doing? Like what kind of a misreading of the scriptures is that we should be people of rejoicing and so you kind of have a couple of options and i think there's an amen we should be people of rejoicing are you with me the tomb's empty like we have reason to, to celebrate i don't feel like we're breaking new ground there and yet it's so hard and yet how many of us rejoicing almost feels like you get this far into a sermon on rejoicing and you go I guess we're just supposed to ignore all the bad stuff. I guess supposed we're just ignore the problems in the culture, ignore the problems in the family, ignore my own sin, just ignore it all, and that's how rejoicing happens. And that's why I love this passage from Paul. Not one iota of, hey, pretend the Roman Empire is a good, peaceful place. Not one iota of, because of Jesus, I'm starting to like prison food. You know, like none of that. Rather, eyes wide open that the world is a mess and that he just might be in the place where he dies, even though the dude wants to go to Spain. I don't think he's getting to Spain. He's dying there in Rome. It's not going to work out for him. And yet, he looks at all of this and goes, but guys, if you're looking for a sad story, you got to go someplace else. I want a little of that. Do you want a little of that? Not only do I want a little of that, we're called to that. Like, we have to be tough rejoicers. Are you with me? Like discipline, like can take it, like I don't feel great today, how about you? And yet we will praise the Lord. So last week we looked at who God is and the fact that God hears us and that God is our Savior. He's the lamp. He's the one who lights our way. And that fed me this week. It, 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 and I hope it fed you. But there's more. 
In particular, Paul has something to say here in Philippians. And if we would start maybe not in, uh, in 18 where Paul has started, um, but, but just so we get a running start to remember where we are in, uh, in Philippians, let's start in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. We've said this before, all the best letters get written from prison. Paul is most probably, uh, he's definitely imprisoned as he's writing Philippians. He's probably in a Roman prison. Some people go, Ephesus, eh, probably not. He's probably in a Roman prison where he's probably going to spend the rest of his life. And this is where this has come from. And so one of the questions in, in the book of Philippians is like Paul going, hey, you guys might be really bummed out and even embarrassed of the movement because you've heard that I landed in jail. I want you to know I'm not ashamed of this at all. In fact, great things are happening. I'm sitting here in prison rejoicing. So he continues. Um, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's a good thing. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Oh, I love that. Can we just camp on that just for a sec? Paul is like, there's guys out there going, Paul gets this Jesus thing all wrong. And then they talk for a long time about Jesus so they can stick it to Paul. And Paul's like, woohoo! That's awesome. Did they just talk about Jesus a long time? I don't care what they said about me. They're talking about Jesus. Happy to be the brunt of the joke, right? So, uh, so then he keeps going. What then? And this is where we started our scripture reading for the day. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Do you see the story? Some bad things have definitely happened. Paul is definitely in prison. Some folks are talking about Jesus out of... I love this. That people are talking, it's just too bad that this pos- is possible, but we see it all the time. People are talking about Jesus out of selfish ambition. Like preaching self-denial out of selfish ambition is quite a like philosophical gymnastics routine. And yet, people do it. I don't know if it's, uh, if it's to make a name for themselves in the Christian community. Maybe they want to stick it to Rome, you know? They want to be like, not this pantheon, but Jesus. Or maybe um, they, you know, like we said, maybe they want to say how wrong Paul is, but they're talking about Jesus. And I love that Paul sees those challenges. Paul's not like, I'm not really in prison when you think about it. I'm, you know, I'm doing great. No, he's like, man, just what's happened to me has advanced the gospel. He sees the challenges. Yep, I'm in jail. Not everybody is on the same page. There's people are going out, some in selfish ambition, some out of good terms. Like we're not all, it's not the perfect scenario even here in the church here in Rome. And yet the rejoicing doesn't ignore the struggle, but it transcends the struggle. While he can honestly look and see challenges, he also honestly is rejoicing and what God is doing. And I wonder if we need to grow in that. I think probably if I said, let's make a list of all the problems in your life, in the world, in the church. I mean, not only could we make a long list, but I've said this before, you sell a lot of books that way. Like 
That's how to get people to your blog. You know what I'm talking about? Just talking about the problems. And the problems are real. But Paul, in the middle of all the problems, has this ability to go, yeah, but they just pale in comparison to what God is doing. Here's the first big idea. Six big ideas, and then we'll go have a fall festival. Big idea number one, your joy will largely depend on your aim. Did you see that word? Paul, if Paul's aim had been for Paul's comfort, or if Paul's aim had been for Paul's fame, like if our aim, if I was here saying, guys, we need to make Lighthouse World renowned. We need to make Lighthouse the most popular church. We need to make Lighthouse the biggest, richest church. We need, because do we preach the gospel in here? Yes, and that's good for everybody. So we should be in every living room in America. Are, are there going to be some ups and downs in that? Sure. Maybe that's not even what God wants. Maybe God wants to be a little family church. I like being a little family church. It's good with me. If Paul's goal was Paul's fame, if Paul's goal was Paul's comfort, he has zero reason to rejoice. But that was not Paul's aim. Paul's aim was the glory of God. Paul's aim, he just wants to see the kingdom of God advance. He wants the story of Jesus, the name of Jesus to be known. And if, so we couldn't guarantee, hey, let's build a huge church. We can't guarantee that. Maybe we could, maybe we couldn't. But if we said, hey, our aim, what are there, 80 of us in here? Our aim is that by the end of this week, the name of Jesus will be more known. If that was actually our aim, could we accomplish that? And we would probably come back here with some stories of suffering. We would probably come back with some stories of like, that did not go that great. And yet, our aim was the glory of Jesus. And in that, we rejoice that the kingdom advanced. So Paul can look around and go, look, people are growing in confidence. I love the kind of laundry list of success. It's feels a lot like a missionary letter, doesn't it? It's like, hey guys, I'm in here, I'm suffering. Here's the good stuff God's doing. He says, um, people are growing in confidence. They have less fear as they're talking about Jesus. People are talking about Jesus in the marketplace. They're going out and doing it. Even some of the guards here are getting saved. He can be joyful in prison because staying out of prison wasn't his aim. And I wonder, what is your aim? What is it that your life is directed towards? If you were to say, this is what I want, if I had to say one thing that I want in my life, is it the glory of Jesus? Because I think through your suffering or through your success, Jesus will be glorified if that's your aim. What are you hoping comes from your life? What is it that at the end of your life, you want people to say, this is what he accomplished. I'll even go so far as to say this. If your aim is temporal, if it has to do with this life, there are going to be lots of times where you're not able to accomplish your aim. Even the most successful of us tell stories of, man, those were hard times, or the meeting didn't go well, or nobody bought the product, or whatever it was. Even, even the most successful of us in this life will say, man, life's been filled with ups and downs. And I would even say very few humans accomplish what their aim is in this life. Most of us are shooting for something that we don't get all the way to. 
But if your aim is the glory of God in your life, man, pretend I'm not a pastor. Pretend you're just hearing this in your own head, right? If your aim is the glory of God in your life, that's a guarantee. If what you want out of life is for God to be glorified in your life, you can have it. And you can rejoice in that. Paul is rejoicing is rejoicing not because of how the kingdom is growing, but just that the kingdom is growing. The big idea number two is a life of rejoicing depends on what you are rejoicing in. See, I think the most natural thing is to make our relationship with Jesus a side project in our life. And what we would really like to rejoice in is, and these are good things, family, career, a uh, good group of friends, balanced life. We would like to rejoice that we figured all of that out. And then also that Jesus is part of that balanced life. I don't think there's a lot of room for rejoicing very often if that is our aim. Paul has swept all of that other stuff away and said, my aim is just that God would be glorified. That is what my rejoicing is in. Paul is not rejoicing because life is good. Paul is rejoicing because the most important part of life is good. <coughs> that God is glorified. That the kingdom is advancing. This phrase that Paul uses, I will rejoice, happens in the Septuagint in the New Testament. In the Greek um, version of the Bible, happens five times. Let me read them to you. Psalm 31 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. I will, uh, Isaiah 65, 19 says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Uh, that's God talking. Jer uh, Jeremiah 32, 41 says, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land. Again, it's God talking. Habakkuk 3, 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and then here in Philippians 1, 18 um, in every way, whether in uh, pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I will rejoice is always a function of what you are rejoicing in. So the question is not, at some point will my life be so perfect I can't think of any reason to not rejoice. I bet you'll always be able to think of some reasons to not rejoice. The question is, are you rejoicing in God and his kingdom? I think we kind of assume, and this is just a, you know, it's just a cultural thing. I think we all kind of assume that if any part of our life is difficult, then it would be inappropriate to rejoice. Don't we kind of feel like that? Even as a culture, as a, as a people, as families, as, as individuals, we kind of feel like, we shouldn't be throwing a party right now. Look at this suffering over here. Or I can't tell somebody, man, I am rejoicing in the Lord because obviously there's bad things happening in my life. And we kind of feel like it's inappropriate. The only time we should really be throwing that party, really be rejoicing, is if we go, look, everything is good. And Paul would say that's almost the exact opposite. Everything is good is not an option for Paul. He's had to decide, do I have reason to rejoice? We have to be, we have to grow into people 
who can rejoice, not ignoring the suffering of the world or the suffering in our hearts, but rather in spite of it, because God's kingdom is real. I would even say that motivates us, inspires us to be of some use in the world. So let's look at Paul's reason for rejoicing in the rest of our passage. And and first of all, start with the end of verse 18. Paul says, so I, I rejoice. Then the, the end of verse 18, he says, yes, I will rejoice. That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? I will rejoice, like in the future? Like, how's he know? Maybe he's going to the, maybe he's going to be crucified tomorrow. Maybe, maybe it's off with his head in the morning. Like, how does he know he will rejoice? How can he say that? Is he able to rejoice in the moment? Okay, yeah, it looks like some people got saved and people are less afraid and, uh, of talking about Jesus and all that, but what if those things change? What if it seems like God's kingdom isn't advancing? What if, what if the Roman guards stop getting saved? What then? How can Paul sit here and go, how could you and I sit here and go, I will be in the future a person who rejoices in the goodness of God? Well, Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Come on. The third big idea is that rejoicing is a sure thing if it's rooted in Jesus. You can sit here and look me in the eye and go, no matter what happens, through death and destruction, through fire and flood and pestilence. I will be a person of rejoicing. How could you say that? Because I know Jesus. Because my rejoicing is not rooted in any of those things. My rejoicing is not in all of that temporal stuff. Paul says, I'm, says that has this line about deliverance, right? Because of the spirit of Jesus Christ, it will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is trusting in his salvation. That word deliverance is soterion, like soteriology, like the study of, of what it means to be saved. He's, it would be maybe more appropriate to, to say not deliverance, but the way we use the word deliverance, we might think, oh, he thinks Jesus is promising to get him out of jail. No, that's not it at all. Jesus is promising to save him. So Paul's saying either way, death, life, I'm saved. In fact, maybe the worse our situation, the more appropriate it is for us to rejoice in our deliverance. Maybe if you're in a season where it's just been wave after wave after wave and you just feel like, oh my gosh, is this world ever going to work out for me? Could we get a win at some point? Maybe that is exactly the time that you go, man, salvation in my life shines brighter than it ever has. Here's, here's the thing. Paul is mindful that his present situation is not his permanent situation. Would you please stop rejoicing only because of your present situation? Now, it is appropriate. God is a heavenly father. He's a good father. He knows how to give good gifts to his kids. Sometimes there's blessing and you get out of whatever the situation is. And sometimes, you know, the, the, check in the mail shows up and the kid comes home with all A's and, and you and your wife are like, we just had a really nice talk. You know, like sometimes that all works out and it happens. That's appropriate to rejoice in that. It's appropriate to say, thank you, God. What a great day. 
But could we make that wave of good day and bad day something that we receive daily from his hand and instead be people who are people of rejoicing? And I'm not talking about like just in our heart. I mean, people who sing, people who smile, people who encourage each other, people who pray for each other because of our permanent situation in the kingdom of God, not because of our daily situation. What if that was all I had? Oh, dude, you guys. <laughs> what if that's all I had to offer you today? What if all I had to offer you was a permanent place in the kingdom of God? What if all that's Jesus ever promised? Is that I'd go to build a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I'd tell you. And in this world, you'll have trouble but I'm going to come get you. What if that's all you had? Could you be a person of rejoicing? Or would we still be riding every wave of newscast and, and every wave of whatever's coming in from family and every email and Facebook post and whatever? What is it that your faith is placed in? Paul says, my faith is, it's, it's because of my deliverance, because of my salvation, and also because of the prayer of his friends. He says, for I know that through your prayers, would you be surprised to know that one of the most consistent parts of Paul's letters is requests for prayer? Paul writes letters to instruct and encourage and reprimand, and he also writes letters to go, dude, would you pray for me? Like Paul covets the prayers of the church. Paul was counting on the prayers of his friends. He's sure of his salvation and counting on prayer to encourage his faith as he waits. He rejoiced not only in his salvation. Are you ready for this? He not only rejoiced in his salvation, but in the salvation of the saved community. How good it is when brothers dwell in unity. This we talk a lot about. And, you know, we want to stay away from what it means to be saved is to be a member of the right church or anything like that. And yet in our insistence that, the, that my relationship with Jesus is a personal thing, we have forgotten that my relationship with Jesus is a communal thing. It's something that we do together to encourage each other. It's so profound. It is great to have a future hope. But how great is it that we have this hope together? You know, it's funny, it's one of the things that I think the pandemic has robbed us most of is, um, I mean, we did, a, we did a bunch of time where we were just doing church online, which is fine. I mean, I could talk, I guess, into a camera. I was, I was actually pretty sad at how natural it felt to me to just be in my office talking to nobody and going, did my job. Um, but, you know, we used to have adult Sunday school where we sat around tables and we prayed for each other. And we had men's prayer uh, early in the morning. And we had in-groups that met in homes. And all of those things that I hope someday we get back to, but, but, you know, we're all pretty comfortable doing less. And there's some balance in that at this point. And yet, how important is it that we are in this together, in community, in prayer? Paul says it's not just God, it's you. 
I always, many times at, at a funeral, I'll, I'll use the line, I'll say, or a memorial service, I'll say that a shared sorrow is half a sorrow and a shared joy is a double joy. And isn't that true? Man, we need to be people who share some joy. We need to be people who share some sorrows. There is not just a psalm commandment or conviction that we should be people in rejoicing. There is New Testament encouragement that this needs to be a community of rejoicing. And not just us, but with other churches on the peninsula. So Paul says it's the prayers of his friends, it's his own deliverance, his own salvation. Also, it's the continuing presence of Jesus. And this is just so proud, profound to me. He uses the phrase, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Have you ever said the spirit of Jesus Christ in natural conversation? No, you've said the Holy Spirit and you've said Jesus. But here we have this beautiful Trinitarian phrase, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is not just counting on like help from Jesus. He is counting on the presence of Jesus in his life. Paul has come to expect a special connection with God. I wonder if in some of your times of most suffering, sorrow, difficulty, if it wasn't just the presence of a friend who made all the difference. It wasn't advice that they gave. It wasn't you know, any practical help. It was just the fact that they loved you enough to be there with you. And Paul says, this is what I'm experiencing with Jesus. Paul's sitting in a prison going, you know why I'm rejoicing? Because Jesus is with me. And I'm rejoicing because this prison doesn't define me. I'm saved. And I'm also rejoicing because I'm counting on your prayer. So Paul kind of looks into the future, not with the burden of his present circumstance, but through the lens of salvation. And guys, if this world needs anything from the church in America, it is that we would be people of peace and rejoicing, knowing that the current situation doesn't describe us or define us, but that the cross and the empty tomb defines us and saved is the thing that best describes us. Here in verse 20, Paul continues and says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, I love that, rejoicing takes courage. Sometimes you have to rejoice even when you don't want to. I always describe courage to, to kids I'm teaching to, to bat. I go, hey, are you afraid of the ball? They go, no, and of course you are. Look at this kid on the other team. He's built like a moose. He's throwing the ball at you as hard as you can. Courage is not not being afraid. Courage is standing in there and doing your job even when you are afraid. And rejoicing takes that kind of courage. I will rejoice even though I look around and see danger and toil all around me. So with courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Big idea number four, if you're excited about God uh, being honored in your body, then there is great hope for rejoicing. In this case, Paul's experience bears this out. I mean, Paul has come to this conclusion, not philosophically, but by getting his tail kicked over and over and over. Hundreds of lashes, lots of jail time, snake bites, shipwrecks, all kinds of stuff. And in all of it, every time, even in his suffering, Paul goes, Jesus was glorified. 
They tried to kill the gospel. It just keeps growing. So one of the things that's hardest for us in our epoch, like in our time, to understand is the gospel is not afraid of Christian suffering. It kind of thrives. Like the word of God, the salvation of God shines bright when the church is hurting. And Paul goes, look, I am full of courage. I know for sure that Christ will be honored in my body. At the end of it all, he always is. I mean, what else are they going to do to Paul? Because a life that is centered in Jesus glorifies Jesus. It just, it just does. If your life is centered in Jesus, it'll glorify Jesus. Some people would say that Christ is most glorified in our success. That as we are the wealthiest and most powerful and whatever, that that's how Christ is glorified best. We would not say that. Some would say the opposite and say, actually, Christ is glorified best when the church, when Christians are suffering and when we're sad and sitting in ashes and sackcloth. We would also not say that. We would say this, that Christ is most glorified when Christians are obedient to him in every situation, in plenty and in want, through ups and downs, through mountain peaks and low valleys, that it is our obedience, our adherence, our counting on Jesus for our rejoicing that most glorifies him. So do you see how Paul can say about his future, I will rejoice? If it's good, and I get out of jail and I'm off to Spain, I will rejoice. If I die right here, I will rejoice. And some of maybe the most famous line in, in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. Big idea number five is that our mission gives us reason to rejoice. I wonder if you've ever been given a difficult mission. And thought, I actually am more encouraged. I've been given purpose. The training is now going to find its fruit in a mission. You know, Paul is prone to like emotional, beautiful, kind of flowery, glorifying God kind of, kind of language as he considers the love of God. But that's not what this is. This is not Paul going, ah, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's what I always tell. It's what I always told junior hires when I took them uh, skiing. If you if I if you see me crash and I'm almost gonna die, live as Christ dies again. You leave me right there. <laughs> you don't pull me back. <laughs> Paul says to live as Christ. That's that's not metaphor. Do you remember what Jesus said at Lazarus' tomb? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus offers living water. Jesus is, uh, offers life and life abundantly. Life is in Christ. And then to die is gain. Again, this is also not metaphor. This is only true in Christ. If you are living for family, 
then death is a total loss. If you are living for success, then death is a total loss. It is over. But if you are living for the glory of God, then death is gain. You can see this in how, view, how, how Paul like, speaks of, of death and life. He says the word depart, right? And like referring to death. He goes, hey, it's better to depart. To depart? That word he uses, depart, is like what you do when you unmoor a ship or when you like pack up for like you were camping and you like break down the camp to depart. Like Paul's like, it'd be better just pack it up. It's almost like going home would be an escape. And then for, remain, for living, he says, ah, but if God wants me to, I'll remain. I'll stay here. Man, Paul sees every breath as a job description. You know why Paul can rejoice? Because if he wakes up tomorrow morning, it will mean fruitful labor for him. He does not wake up and go, I hope I'm comfortable. I hope I get that apology I so deserve. I hope that the people I don't like aren't in my life anymore. No, rather, Paul wakes up and goes, if I'm breathing, it means mission. And there's a reason to rejoice. And lastly, verse 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear uh, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel the last big idea of the day big idea number six rejoicing is reflected in our manner of living not caused by it let me say that again rejoicing is reflected in your manner of living not caused by your manner of living you decide to be a person of rejoicing and it is born out in joyful obedience to the gospel. It is, jo- it, is, it is born out, it is shown, it is demonstrated, it is manifested in your life. It pops out of you in obedience. Paul says, in particular, unity in the church. Right? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come to see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. What does rejoicing look like? I think it looks like singing. I think it looks like eating together. In fact, can I remind you that we are headed for a marriage feast of the Lamb? Can I remind you that where this is all going for us believers is a brilliant dinner party with enjoyment and conversation. The grave is not what's ahead. I mean, it might be, that's like the gateway to the party, but a party with Jesus the Lamb as the host and us as his bride, this is where we're headed. So why would we spend the whole time between here and there refusing to rejoice? If you had a family function coming up this Thursday that you were really excited about, oh, we're going to see family we haven't seen. These people all get along. You know, crazy Uncle Grant couldn't come. <laughs> it's 
going to be good, you know? You wouldn't be like, but let's be sad every day till then. No, rather you'd say, how was today? Today wasn't great, but Thursday's coming. That's where we're headed. So I think rejoicing looks like dinner parties and inviting each other out to lunch and, and community and laughing and tell a good joke and learn to sing and write a poem and all of this stuff that rejoicing always means. But Paul has more than that. He says it also looks like obedience. It also looks like you and I taking seriously the call to live out a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel, particular in unity in the church. This takes some courage. It takes a lack of fear that Paul talks about. It takes all the things that David talked about last week. But at the end of the day, we must be people who are sure that fear and death and anger and hatred are not in our future but rather to look at the ups and downs of the world and ups and downs of family and ups and downs of church life and ups and downs of career and ups and downs and all of that and go, ah, through all of that, I will rejoice. I wonder if you, like Paul, could write, I will rejoice no matter what.